Welcome to the Navigating Hollywood podcast. My name is Alan Wolf, and I'm a filmmaker and an author. You can check out my latest movie, The Sound of Violet, which is available wherever you stream movies. Navigating Hollywood encourages and equips entertainment professionals to live relationally and spiritually holistic lives. If you work in entertainment, visit navigatinghollywood.org to discover how you can get involved. Today, we're joined by Robert Stillman, who is a film producer, entrepreneur, and investor. His first off-Broadway show, The God Committee, was made into a movie starring Kelsey Grammer, Julia Stiles, and Janine Garofalo. He helped produce the award-winning play Freud's Last Session, which launched productions in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Sydney. That show has been turned into a movie starring Anthony Hopkins as Sigmund Freud, and Matthew Good as C.S. Lewis. Rob has also invested in Broadway shows such as A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, Puffs, and Amazing Grace. Welcome, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. Happy to say uh, this is my first podcast I've ever done, so. This is historic. Wow. And everyone listening or watching is here to witness this amazing occasion. (laughs) So happy to be invited, so I appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. And a huge congratulations on Freud's last session being turned into a motion picture. Was that always your plan? I had a plan. I got derailed. I ended up meeting with Carolyn Rosie Copeland, who's a producer in New York, with an idea of my own. And uh, she said, I have this other project. Maybe you'd like to look at it. And it was the God Committee. And that was basically 12 Angry Men kind of set in a hospital the people that decide who's going to get a transplant is Hmm. called the God Committee. They had picked out a candidate. He was in prep. There was a heart on the way, and then he dies in prep, and then they have to reconvene, and they have 45 minutes to decide who's going to get the heart that's on its way, and Hmm. they all disagree on who should get it. That was kind of a, a really cool project, and that obviously, like you said, got turned into a film with Kelsey Grammer and Jeanine Garofalo. But I had nothing to do with like the movie side of that. But then from there, uh, Mark St. Germain had written The God Committee. And then he invited me to a table read of Freud's last session. As soon as it was over, I was like, I'd love to be involved in any way, shape, and form. And I'll do whatever I can to help. And it eventually made it to uh, Off-Broadway and ran for uh, two years. Wow. That's amazing. Pretty crazy for a small little play. Totally. And then you took it on the road because I remember seeing it in Santa Monica and it starred Judd Hirsch and was it Tom Cavanaugh? Yes, Tom Cavanaugh, who was the lead in Ed, as you might recall. Mm, And they were were great, super great guys to work with. And it's, it's been, that's been interesting as well. Like everyone that's been involved with Freud from New York to Chicago to LA, like they find the material fascinating and they really enjoy it because it's, it's a two-hander, one act, no intermission. So there's really nowhere to hide. And so I think actors enjoy that. It mm. puts them even on a higher tightrope, if you know what I mean. And it was interesting, too, because we had the screening in L.A. in November at AFI for Freud's last session of the movie. And Judd Hirsch came to the film, to the screening. Oh, that's great. Did he say something to you afterwards? No, I, you know, I saw him coming down the, the steps and I 
I said, hey, I don't know if you remember, but I was one of the producers on the play, and, you know, I met you in Santa Monica, and and uh, he's like, oh, yeah, very nice, very nice, and just kept moving. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, seemed like a huge get to get Anthony Hopkins to play the lead role of Sigmund Freud. How did that all happen? way Hopkins came to the table is Rick Nasita, who is one of the producers on the film, was at one time his agent. Mm. And I guess he had gotten the script. He shared it with, see, I, I can't call him anything but Sir Anthony Hopkins, but he actually goes by Tony. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it doesn't feel right. So we'll, anyways, call, we'll call him Tony. Tony. We'll be very casual yeah, yeah, during yeah. this. I just, I just want him to be comfortable. But uh, he gave it to Tony. He read it. And I think, as I recall, Rick told me, like, the next day, he was like, I want to do this. Wow. So, Amazing. Which is pretty, pretty, you know, that it's, you give someone a script and it's like, you're lucky if you hear back from him in a month. But, yeah, it was like the next day. He called him and said, I really like it. And then mm. Tony and Matt working together for, like, a year prior to filming starting. And... He just shared like different texts and emails with me of like how much he was investing in the part, just notes and like ideas. And like, I think yeah. there was one email that Matt had printed out from Anthony that was like 12 pages long, like <laughs> wow. really just delving into it. So he, he really dug in. He really wanted to understand it. He really wanted to portray something with real depth. And it was interesting too, like, and this is going to sound like name dropping, but we just had a screening in New York on Tuesday and Jim Gaffigan was there. He was just talking about how, like what came through and how the depth of the, the character that Anthony and Matthew good both display on the screen. He was really impressed with. Amazing. So, they worked together building up to a year. And what was it like seeing that come to life on the set? It was very difficult. First of all, he's 84 years old. Mm. And I don't care who you are. At that age, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of memory, like all that stuff to pull that off. Most of the, of the film is in Freud's office. Intensive dialogue. And the blocking, all, all the things that went into it, and to pull it off. I don't think we were ever a day late. Everything was on schedule and just a consummate pro. The locations expand, though, because it goes outside. Because mm. there's kind of, it's kind of a, a past is prologue kind of argument in a film that both of their worldviews were shaped by, you know, the experiences they had in real life. C.S. Lewis's mother dying at the age when he was, I believe he was nine. And he got shipped to England and went to boarding school and just kind of like a new life. And Ireland was a distant memory. And then Freud's experiences with anti-Semitism and mm. being raised by a Catholic nanny, which is kind of interesting. Mm. But all those things kind of, there's flashbacks to that within the film that kind of inform how they came to their worldviews. Mm. Wow. It's shot in Ireland. I was just blown away by the crew they were great mm. and they were mm. set up to set up to set up hmm. in ireland i guess you know they have that really good tax credit 
and but it's still kind of fresh and that they're still enjoying the circus like the crews are like so excited about what's going on and it's not rote and like drudgery yet uh, so i guess right that's a, a a good thing what first attracted you toward wanting to tell the story i've always wanted to do projects that were kind of maybe espousing a worldview that isn't quite the norm hmm. and and edifying and challenging and maybe providing something to think about versus like, how do I make a buck? It resonated with me on that level. And hmm. to hear, you know, two people kind of having this philosophical argument and arguing and defending or proposing whatever their worldview is. It, it, I loved it. And it was a tough time because I think that was the end of 2008 going into 2009. Hmm. And so to get that done in the midst of a, a very substantial recession was not easy. Wow, <laughs> so, amazing. And the other thing I learned, and this is for, if we're going to talk about navigating Hollywood, never, ever, ever assume the person you're talking to won't potentially invest in your project. Hmm. Um, hmm. You never know. And hmm. I just remember I was, someone asked me what I was working on. And in the back of my head, I'm like, I don't even know why I'm saying this because this guy's not, I don't, he's not going to, he's not going to do this. Hmm. And uh, I just did my little elevator pitch and he goes, um, I'll do two units. I was like, what? Uh, okay. <laughs> and that was, you know, so I was like right there. I was like, you know, that was on me. I was like, was mm. kind of being a jerk for thinking I knew something I didn't know. Mm. You don't know. Mm. Never be afraid to talk to anybody. Never be yeah. afraid to pitch and always right. be ready to pitch and never assume yeah. your pitch is a waste. I completely agree with that. I had a similar experience with my first film in my sleep where I just got had so many meetings with people that by the time a person wanted to meet with me, I didn't know much about this person and I just didn't think it was going to turn out to be anything. And so I, I just was like, okay, I'm just going to do it. Low expectations, but it turned out to be the largest investor in the film. So you're right. You just, you can never assume, just always go in with the best, but it's, it's hard to keep that attitude up because it is grueling <laughs> raising funds. To your point, the most, the most damaging to your, psyche too is the people that you think like this is a home run i'm like i'm gonna walk oh, in totally. i don't yes. i don't even feel like, like uh, i can't i'm just i'm just waiting to see how many zeros are gonna be on this check exactly. and then they're like no and it, that's the real kick in the you know what like oh totally okay. oh my gosh yeah to completely been there absolutely and yeah. even there was a phase for me where people would make you think that they're actually heading in one particular direction in a very positive direction and then just turn it. So it's just, you never know until, not that you have the check, but it's been deposited in the bank and cleared. Then you know it's real. I meet people all the time who say, yeah, I have these people that they say they're going to invest in, in my film or whatever. And I say, well, have they written a check? Has it cleared the bank? And it's hard as a filmmaker because you want to get excited about, oh, this person says they're going to invest. But it's very easy to say you're going to invest. It's not easy to write the check and have it clear. So <laughs> I totally hear you about that part of the journey. Let's face it. We're not working for DreamWorks. We're not 
Steven Spielberg or who, whatever big name producer or actor or talent or whatever you got behind you. We don't have those things. So it's going to come down to kind of grit and perseverance and just trying to create the opportunity that you're going to need and your project's going to need just to move forward. And it's just, mm. and maybe sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and realize maybe this doesn't have the value proposition to, to move on. Mm, <laughs> right. Just close right. that door and, uh, and just accept it. But that's hard to do. I mean, that's. Oh, completely. And I must say, everyone has the exact same battle because even you mentioned Steven Spielberg, even Steven Spielberg is challenged at finding finances for his movies. Like you think people right. at that level, it just suddenly goes away, but it doesn't. It just changes. But everyone is always looking for funding. Maybe it's slightly easier for someone like him, but everyone's playing on the same playing field. In my case in point, because I've been working on a film called Don't Stop Me Now, which is an adaptation of a UK documentary called The Boy Whose Skin Fell Off. And I've been working on it. It's a passion project. And people are like, you're still working on that. And I'm like, well, hey, George Lucas worked on Red Tails mm -hmm. for 21 years. <laughs> and so I'm like, if it took him 21 years to do something, why do I think I'm going to do something in, you know, a year and a half to two years or whatever? Yeah. And then you kind of look back and you look at like all the little things that had to happen hmm. to slowly advance. And that's just kind of what it's about is to just try and make a little bit of progress every day or every month or however that is. And then hmm. eventually it seems like the timing will catch up to you hmm. and uh, you'll, you will have set up all the dominoes and then there's hmm. that next event that, makes the dominoes fall. And that's what they did with Freud with, you know, they kept working in the background. They came to us like eight years ago, but you know, to match credit, he kept plotting along and working along and did a rewrite and did all, you know, all this work so that when Anthony Hopkins was handed the screenplay, he was handed the best screenplay you could get. Hmm. He liked it. And then when Anthony said, I'm on board, there goes the dominoes. There's so much work we do that you're not sure if it's valuable or whatever. Mm. But when you look back over time, you're like, okay, that that's what got this to there and that to there and that mm. to there. And, and here we are now. Mm. So it's, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> Very true. I love that perspective. And it's interesting because I've heard Anthony, Tony, Sir Anthony talk about his own spiritual journey that seems to kind of mirror what the characters are going through in the movie. Did you experience any of that from him and his own feedback? Yeah, I did. And when I think when I was first approached about the project, you know, I was like looking at where he was at in a personal space. And then there was an, an article where he talked about like, he goes, Hey, I'm, I'm 83. I realize I'm nearing the end of the road. Hmm. And, and so I think on these things and, but he's very, very comfortable with the idea that he's near the end of his time on this earth to be comfortable in that space. You either have to have a blissful ignorance. Most people don't have, hmm. or you've grappled with the questions and thought about it and, and have come up with an idea of, of what that means. Hmm. 
and where you're going and being comfortable with the idea of, of what the next step of that journey is going to be. And I think mm. that's where he's at. He's mm. kind of made peace with it. I think one of the things that really resonated with him was this idea that we need to have conversations hmm. and we need to talk through our beliefs and we need to even speak with people we don't necessarily agree with. And the idea of canceling and shunting people off and saying they're not worth talking to is, is a really bad idea hmm. and that we're better as a whole talking with each other and talking through things and understanding each other than we would be to cutting each other off. And I think that's part of it as well. I think that's brilliant. I mean, that's a very modern idea of just instead of engaging, just cutting off and going into your corner. And it seems like as a culture, we've experienced the repercussions of that and how much, how divided we are as a nation, as a world. So I love that your film really encourages people in a different direction. I think anybody coming from either side would be like, I'd like to see my side just crush the other side. But I think in this, you have two scholars who are very respectful and they argue, but at the end of it all, they're going to part as friends hmm. and, and with a deeper, a deeper understanding of each other, a deeper respect for each other. And I think we're all better for it. And I think it's something we can all model in our own lives. It's like earlier when I said, I just assumed this guy was never going to invest. Well, how often do we assume like, well, that person's never going to understand, or I don't even care what that person thinks, or that person's just wrong. And it's like, how do you know that? Hmm. You don't know that. Even talking to them and working through what, why they believe what they believe, maybe you'll learn something. <laughs> yeah. Know, instead of just assuming <laughs> you know it all. You know. <laughs> That's right. I love it. I love it. You've invested in off-Broadway shows and Broadway shows. What draws you to a production? Sometimes it's it's the invite, like, Puffs. I And this is going to be bad. This is really bad. But I never read any of the Harry Potter books. Is that, I mean, I don't know if that's a sin or a crime. But, <laughs> but here's what I did know. All my kids did and my wife did. And they loved them. And uh, so I got approached and I was like, well, if you guys are looking for funding, can is there a preview? And so I sent my experts, which was my wife and my kids. And my wife said it was the funniest thing she'd ever seen. She was embarrassed mm. by how much she laughed. She was crying. Mm. And so I was like, okay, well, then I'll do it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that turned out to be a great investment. So mm. uh, that was one method. Uh, now, mm. Amazing Grace... I actually was approached at my brother's mother-in-law's funeral, which, you know, I bet you know how it is. People, you get, it, the venue doesn't seem to matter, but they, oh, you're into film or you're into entertainment. I have this friend with an idea. I'm like, okay. <laughs> right. And uh, so this guy comes up to me and he's like, um, I have this friend who's kind of written this musical and it's the true story of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, would you be interested? And honestly, I was like, who's this guy? And he's like, well, he's a retired cop. And I'm like, okay. It's like, <laughs> I'm uh, sure, why not? And the music, uh, music story, everything was amazing. Hmm. And uh, I was blown away by it. And I was like, okay, well then you need help. I'm not going to take this to Broadway. I don't, I wouldn't even pretend 
I know how to do that. But hmm. Carolyn, who I met, hmm. I took Amazing Grace to her. And I said, listen, do you think there's anything here? We went to a preview. It was actually in the basement of the Empire State Building. And then she came on board and really was the person that got it to Broadway. Honestly, how it's not still running today, I don't know. It it was hmm. a great show. It was amazing. But for whatever reason, hmm. uh, the critics didn't like it. So it is mm. what it is. What was that like, just dealing with that? It sucked. But that's the nature mm. of the game. I mean, you know, even Freud's last session, it's gotten good reviews. But to say they're raves, you know, we've gotten some negative ones. And I just feel so much, mm. I actually feel so much more for the director and the actors who they're pouring their heart and soul into it. I mean, I love it. And I've, I've put plenty of work into it. But I feel like they're even even more so exposing themselves and putting themselves even more out there. And it's just like, you know, it is what it is. You know, you kind of just birth this thing and you give it to the world. And, and then what happens, happens. And um, it's not mm. easy. That's probably, to be honest, the hardest part. Because you want everyone to love it the mm. same way you do. And it's just never mm. going to happen that way. I think there's there's elements of the film that certain critics are just, they're not going to get past. Mm. I think some of that is related to the discussion itself. And so hmm. the one thing I will say that we've gotten in every review is that Matthew Good and Anthony Hopkins' performances are just mesmerizing. And they all acknowledge that. They're like, the hmm. actors are great. Hmm. So uh, wow. we've captured that. And so I think for the, for the critics and for the audience that is going to, you know, be attracted to this content to begin with, they're going to love it. On mm. that score, I think we've, you know, hit a home run, which is great. You chose a story where there are a lot of spiritual questions that are posed. What has your own spiritual journey looked like? A lot like that, <laughs> you know? Really? I was raised in not quite a fundamentalist evangelical household. We were close, but not 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 quite that far uh, into the fundamentalist camp. More of an evangelical, mm. and I think uh, as anybody grows up and they mature, they're like, "How much of this is something I inherited, and how much of this mm. is something I fleshed out for myself?" One of the most powerful things that shaped me was I went on a missions trip to El Salvador, and it became clear to me on that trip, and I was in college that I don't think I was in the right space. And I don't know that I, it, it kind of washed away everything I grew up with and hmm. exposed me to, I would say, a more real relationship with Christ and just like realizing that I needed to repent. And that was a big part of my journey. I just feel like there is an intelligence to the universe that's undeniable. So for me, it's just, I just believe that there's a God and his son walked the earth, died for me. And in that process, absolved me of my sin. So I believe that that's, that's what I believe. And how did that idea become a reality in your life? I think 
when you go through the process of kind of kicking the tires, at some point you got to get in the car. If I'm going to believe this, then it kind of needs to inform everything you do. And I'm, and Alan, I am by no means perfect. I don't want to put myself on any type of like uh, pedestal. I screw up all the time. And uh, from the outside looking in, I'm sure people would be like, dude, you're an outrageous hypocrite. But when your standard is perfection, <laughs> it's kind of hard. You're going you're gonna to look like a hypocrite sometimes. And uh, mm. so my goal is to be better than I was yesterday. Um, but at the mm. end of the day, I can't be good enough. And so that's why mm. Christ had to die for us. Because if we could do mm. it on our own, he wouldn't have needed to do that. How has your faith impacted the projects you've chosen? There's just things I won't do. You know, I've been approached mm. with projects and I'm read the script and I'm like, yeah, no, that's even if it was a no brainer, going to make a ton of money. Like, mm, no, I remember I was at a film finance convention. They had a, a panel and they had people come up and they're, how did you get your film funded? And I won't say names because then you'd figure out the project, but they're like, oh, um, X in a bikini, uh, fighting sharks. And I was like, I don't ever want to do that. I, I mean, and, and to be fair, I do have the luxury of not having to do that. You know, I wouldn't want to mm. cast aspersions on someone that like, if you got to feed your family, I, hey, but at a certain level, there's just things I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do and I wouldn't do. And I'd be embarrassed to have my name yeah. on it, you know? So for me, yeah. at the end of the day, I want my kids to see my credits and be like, okay, those are interesting things that were projects that would make people think through like the moral and ethical dilemmas of like the transplant or, you know, John Newton and his journey from slave trader to abolitionist and, hmm. you know, C.S. Lewis and Freud talking about their faith or lack of. And uh, so to me, that's, that's the kind of stuff that's interesting to me. And luckily I have the freedom to kind of pursue those things. You've been married for 30 years. Amazing. In Hollywood math, that's like 90 years, you know, just so you know. But uh, how have you stayed relationally healthy for 30 plus years? I have uh, four kids, 24 through 16, and a wife that's amazing. She's encouraging. Hmm. She has more faith in me than, than I probably, well, than I assuredly deserve. And she's also kept me grounded. We've always been dedicated to each other and willing to do the work that we need to do to, to have the marriage we both want to have. That's great. At the end of your life, what kind of legacy would you like to leave behind? I want my kids to be proud of the man I was. They can look back on the, the choices I made, the commitments I honored, you know, having been married for 30 years, just showing the, the value of honoring the commitments you make. Hmm. I, I think there's an element of pride that, that you know, we, we want to be remembered beyond. And I hate to tell it to most people, the average person, we're going to be forgotten pretty quick. <laughs> and even if you are a big deal. <laughs> In, in any field. Um, I'm not so sure that uh, anything beyond 
having made a positive impact is really is valuable. Hmm. It was interesting. I saw a wildly successful, maybe been a billionaire, some business guy, and he's like, you know, you can have all the success in the world, but if your kids don't want to be with you when they're adults, he goes, I would consider that a failure. Mm. And uh, and I, I 100% feel the same way. And luckily, so far, they enjoy being with us and, and it's precious mm. when it happens. That's probably one of the things I'm most proud of is just to be in a great, close, healthy relationship with all my kids. Mm. That's amazing. Thank you so much for being my guest, Rob. Thanks for sharing your insights and your journey. I really appreciate you being here. It was such a pleasure. If you work in entertainment, check out the complimentary courses and other resources available at navigatinghollywood.org. Please follow us and leave us a review so others can discover this podcast. You can find our other shows, transcripts, links, and more at navigatinghollywood.org. I look forward to being with you next time. 